Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast. This episode is proudly brought to you by, well, anybody. We are currently looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. So if you, an organization or business you know or are involved with might be interested in finding out some more information about sponsoring the Road to Success podcast, then please contact me online either via mattylovell.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram too. We can start to go over how things might work and have you or your business sponsoring the Road to Success podcast. Until then, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with professional rugby player and wellness entrepreneur, Tim Bateman. Radio Tim, mate. Thank you so much for doing this. No worries, mate. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. It's a um, pretty strange old world out there at the moment. I know you've probably got a lot going on, but again, it, um, it means the world for you taking the time to, to jump on and have a chat. That's no, great, mate. It's, um, as you say, it's, it is a mad old place out there at the moment, but um, I suppose just trying to make the most of the time on a number of different fronts, family, but also working stuff doesn't stop at the moment too. If anything, it's probably kicked up a gear. So yeah, no, happy to have some time and, and chat to you. Cool, fantastic. Hey, well, you know, one of the really interesting things about you is, you know, you've sort of been successful in a number of different pursuits and there's probably a lot of people that know you through your sporting career. So maybe we can just sort of start there before we move on to other things that you've done. Did you go straight into sort of professional rugby from high school? Was there university or tertiary or anything? It was my first year out of high school that I did start playing professional rugby, but at the same time, that was sort of June, my first year out. So I started university, um, I studied law, so for my first four years of, of rugby I was studying, so that was a bit of a <clears throat> bit of a challenge, but also we had Shyla, our youngest, um, our first year out of school as well, <laughs> and so we, uh, we sort of jumped straight out of, uh, out of high school into a pretty full-on few years really, but uh, yeah, professional rugby and, and university and family was all sort of in that first year out of school. Yeah, and did you finish your degree? I've got about six papers to go. Yeah. <laughs> I studied full as full-time as I could, which was pretty much part-time anyway, just because we were traveling a lot with rugby. But yeah, so for the first four years, <clears throat> I was with the Crusaders and so I was studying at Canterbury University and then I took a year off and went to Japan. And so as soon as I left New Zealand, I had to stop studying, couldn't, couldn't study New Zealand more out of New Zealand. So I pushed pause on it, came back and played at Hurricanes for four years. And, and so I did a little bit through those that time, but I didn't get back into it as much as I should have. Once again, went, went away again for a, a year to Japan, came back and I did a couple of papers back in 2016 when we opened Cloud9. I did a couple of papers that year, but I haven't actually finished it off yet. So it's it's still on my to-do list, but it keeps on getting pushed back, back and further and further. I've done all my compulsory papers. I've done all my sort of the main papers, just the filler papers to go. So yeah, I'll get there. What does six papers mean time-wise? Is that sort of like a year or two years or a month? or? Uh, that would be just under a year full-time so I'd do probably four papers in the first semester and then two in the, in the second something like that yeah so it's a year study but it's, it wouldn't be quite a full year of work but mm-hmm. as I said I've got all in full intention to do it it's just I just can't bring myself to, <laughs> to do it at the moment there's too many other things going on but it's all good yeah totally so you were you're just out of high school you were playing professional rugby had a baby and you were studying law all at one time <laughs> yeah yeah it was pretty mad um like looking back on it now, I don't really know how we did it. Really, it was pretty crazy. We had, I mean, we had a massive amount of support from both my family and Laura's family. Um, Laura was fantastic in those early years. It was, it was interesting. It was, you know, sitting exams in South Africa, 
you know, a day before a, a game or um, having to cram for exams or tests or essays going into games. Back in sort of 2007, there was worth selling out stadiums and stuff too. So it was it was a really interesting time. And I think that, that that sort of chucked me right in the deep end of having to learn to juggle things and not get too stressed about stuff. Like I got really good at not trying to know everything or trying to learn everything, just getting really good at these are the key things I need to put time into. I'll put that time aside to get it done and, and then making the most of that time. So it was some pretty good learnings that went on those first few years. Yeah, but a deep end is a good place to learn to swim sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. It was definitely the deep end, that's for sure. I think kids are a good, you know, I've got a 14-month-old daughter and I think they're a great sort of, it sounds a bit cliche, but not remind you what's important, but like to your child, all that's important is, you know, a little bit of time, you know, like they don't mind if maybe your shirt's crinkly or the lawns aren't mowed or you haven't quite finished that last email. They're just about, they're sort of, kids are really present and I think they sort of remind you of that sometimes. Definitely, definitely. It was, it made things a lot easier for us actually when the literally as I say look I didn't think about it at the time but looking back like I wanted to be home I wanted to be spending time with Laura and, and Shyla and it meant that I wasn't going out probably doing the things that I would have been doing if I was a 19 year old sort of kid playing rugby I had time to to study and I, I probably made the most of that time a little bit more than my friends were at the time so in that sense it was great and as, and as you say kids just want you there they just want you to be as present as can be so I definitely wasn't perfect but I know I I'm happy with the, the amount of time and effort I put into my family at that stage as well. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, you're rugby, you're being very humble, but, you know, are you captain the Mary All Blacks? You won super rugby titles. You've obviously played in Japan and around the world. When you were playing rugby, was there much thought into what's sort of happening afterwards or, or what you're going to do afterwards? Because, you know, one thing with professional sport, it's one of those things that's really quite finite, you know, because it's such a physical pursuit. Was there much going on in, in, as far as the thought process as to what you might end up doing afterwards? For me, I think I was probably a little bit different, um, or maybe not, but I put a lot of thought into it, a lot of time and energy in it, because I always, and it was actually came from a place of just lacking confidence and self-belief myself. I always felt like that it was going to be my last year. I always felt that there was always going to be someone else that was going to come in and take my spot, you know, that I was going to be figured out pretty quickly and um, people were going to be like, oh, we don't need this guy anymore. So, and plus having Shyla and Laura you know, that I felt like they were, I was responsible for them as well, that I was, I don't know, I probably put in a lot more energy into stuff off the field, thinking about what I was going to be doing next. But if I'm completely honest about it, I think it probably did impact my performance a little bit. I don't think you can be best possible rugby player or the best possible athlete when you've got really important focuses elsewhere. You've got to be quite selfish to be the best you can possibly be. And so I think it probably impacted me a little bit, but I wouldn't change a thing. I'm really happy with what we've done and I've been so lucky to have played as long as I have. Um, I didn't think that I'd be playing. You know, this is my 15th professional rugby year and, yeah, there's no way I would have thought that I was going to be doing that. So I've been really, really lucky. Yeah, but you obviously earned it as well. I think, you know, luck's one thing, but professional sport is not um, something that just falls on your lap, I don't think. You obviously work very hard behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of lot of hard work that's gone in, a lot of sacrifices from my family and friends and myself. And just like any any athlete, it is quite cons- consuming. But shivers, I've made some amazing friends. I've travelled some incredible places. I've probably done things a little bit differently. As, as I say, I've I've done stints overseas right throughout my career. I've sort of in Japan, I've actually played six seasons in Japan. And so they've all been in little stints in between Super Rugby seasons and stuff, right from back from 2010. 
for me, I knew pretty early probably that I wasn't going to be an all black um, just from the early conversations I had with with the all black coaches. The style of play that I was playing was quite different to what they were after. So yeah, I suppose I, I did things a little bit differently knowing that. Is that why? Is that, you know, they sort of, obviously, you know, one thing about professional sport is it's just brutal. You know, it's just like, it's like one week if, if it's, you know, you're not, you don't fit in with the direction or the, the direction of the team or the squad. It's sort of like, hey, you're not quite for us sort of thing. You know, you obviously had that conversation with them, which, you know, I can imagine is not an, an easy thing to sort of listen to. Is that sort of one of the reasons you started looking at other opportunities, you know, Japan and, you know, business ventures and things as well? Uh, it definitely was a big part of it. Like, so even if I look back at, say, 2007, 8, 9, probably some of the best rugby I've played. I've had, had good stints, but that was, I was definitely right in the frame there. And it was at the time when I think the All Blacks had just lost the World Cup 2007 and Robbie Deans was looking at moving into, the, he was potentially going to be the All Black coach. He liked the style of rugby that I played and things could have been quite different, I, th- I think, if he'd moved into that role. The, the, I obviously kept the same coach on board and Robbie went to Australia and we had a, we had conversations about me going and playing over there. But that was probably a little bit far for me to go and play over in Australia. But rugby, really, like anything, it's always just one person's opinion. And yeah. if that person like rates your style, um, whether it's work or sport, you're going to get the job. And so probably right throughout my career we had the same water coaches and the style they liked was something a little bit different and I wasn't the most combative player going around by any stretch my physical sort of you know ability wasn't as good as a lot of other players out there so um, and that's what they wanted in that, in that midfield in the All Blacks so yeah I think that did influence my decision making going forward a bit yeah and, and so you, you had a second child quite soon after your first one I was didn't you Yes, yep. So we had so Shyla in two thousand wow, two thousand six and then uh yeah, two thousand six and then Miley in two thousand eight. So Shyla's thirteen and Miley is eleven now and it's uh so we've got high school one at high school and one at intermediate. It's all go. Yeah, I can imagine. And then, you know, life has a funny way of throwing curveballs at you and your family got one in twenty twelve, didn't you? Twenty twelve was was probably easily actually the the most difficult year we've had as a family and, and individually. So Laura, my wife, says she she got diagnosed with with MS in 2012. It was eight months to a year leading into that, though we knew something was going on. And actually, the diagnosis was probably a bit of a relief. A re- relief is the wrong word because you know MS or multiple sclerosis is a chronic illness. She's going to have it forever. But there were things that were going on for Laura that we just couldn't explain, and and so it was it was a bit of relief understanding there was something there and there potentially something we could do about it. But you know, Laura went from being, you know, so she would win sort of national cross-country meets. She was um, age group New Zealand hockey trials and camps and stuff, so very, very active. She was running you know, right away. I think she was eight months pregnant with Shiloh and she was still out running, and that was meant to be the right thing for her because that's the way her body was set up. But she went from being like that and just sort of, you know, up really wanting a bit of a go-get-in person to couldn't get out of bed, would, would get up, help me get the girls to school, and then would fall back asleep and she'd be... Yeah, out to the end until three o'clock until she had to go pick them up and then you know things she just wasn't able to do anything she lost vision for a period of time there she lost control of a number of different functions you know bladder and bowel and there were heaps of stuff that happened throughout that time and so yeah that was very difficult so we just moved to Wellington too and um, so I just started with the Hurricanes and so yeah it was it was mad and my performances were, were impacted significantly from it too and yeah it was just a challenging time yeah, I mean, I I have this view that I don't believe in like um, 
people talk about that concept of work-life balance. Like I don't believe in it. I think that you're just one human being and you're multifaceted and if, if, if one of those is affected, it's really hard. They're all connected. You know, I think that if someone's just, you know, say got work and life and maybe it's a home life and a work life, if you have a really shitty morning at home with the family, something goes wrong or whatever, it's really hard to show up and do a good job professionally. And if you have a really bad day at work, it's really hard to come home and show up and be a good dad or husband or whatever it is. And, and you obviously had a lot going on at home and that was obviously affecting your performance as an athlete as well? Absolutely. Like if you overlay sort of my life at home or the struggles we had at home with my performance, you can literally, it's like a mirror, like when things were bad at home or when we were struggling with things or when I was in particularly a bad place with things, um, my performance was was impacted. And I suppose rugby for me was like a highlight. Like it was like a, this sort of magnifying glass on things and you, know, you can see you, because you're tracked and everything, you're tracked with the amount of metres you cover, the amount of speed you do, you've covered, you know, metres per second, you've got your tackles, you've got your skill accuracy, you've got all these sort of measures that are happening constantly. And so it was very easy to see when I hadn't performed well and it was uh, always lined up with when I wasn't feeling well mentally. And like, yeah, things probably hit a real low for me. Um, and I remember actually breaking down in front of the team at one stage, um, it was pre-season 2013, We'd done like an all night. It was like a, a military style preseason camp. We, we turned up at three. It was meant to be training at three o'clock. So we thought we were just going to be training from three to five, and it ended up being an all night experience. We were having to do all sorts of full on stuff. Finished up. We had like a, a test, like an exam, at like four or five in the morning, and it finished up at about ten o'clock. We put up tents and stuff and slept till midday. So we had a couple of hours sleep, and then we went into sort of exercises around just getting to know one another and feedback and stuff. And one of the, the exercises, we're all sitting in a circle in the room. There's probably 15 of us in the room, some coaches, some players, guys that are, you know, that I really respected. And it's actually horrible thinking back on it because I was, I just bubbled along, but I couldn't get any words out. But what we had to do was talk about the things that, just the basic, like what you do, what you do really well and what you could work on. And what got me massively was when people were talking about the things I did really well, it wasn't actually the stuff that I needed to work on. Like, and they all said the same thing. Like you don't realize the impact that you have. You, you know, if you, if only you could see yourself, like we you see you, uh, it was all that sort of same sort of feedback. And it, I suppose it just sort of, I'd been pushing all this stuff down and it all just sort of came out at once. But, um, that was a very, very difficult few years there. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, and you sort of said, you know, you said like it's like a highlighter, but in some ways, probably everyone has something like that. They just don't have their life or performance isn't as scrutinized as a professional athlete is. So if someone's struggling with something, whether it's a, you know, it's a health issue or it's a family issue or it's a, you know, a mental well-being issue or whatever it is, I think what your story sort of highlights is that it's affecting other areas of your life as well. And just because, you know, your life isn't scrutinized as much as professional athlete is doesn't mean that you're not being affected in some way. Absolutely. And like I know, for example, it like it impacted my rugby, but it impacted my friendships, it impacted my family, my relationships with my extended family. It impacted a number of other areas, but but because rugby, as you say, was so scrutinized, I could see it a lot more clearly there. And that was a real source of frustration because that you read books and people talk to you about, you know, being confident or having self-belief or, you know, like being able to be present in the moment, like, you know, dump stuff, park it till later, all that sort of, and we had a lot of support in that space and in, in professional rugby, a lot of support we had. 
you know, mental skills coaches talking us through different bits and pieces and stuff. And they're all things that I understood. Like I knew that at some level that I was still a good player and, you know, even if I missed a tackle, it wasn't that big a deal. But I understood that, you know, you should move past things quickly or, you know, leave things at home at home when you're at work, you're at work. But there's one thing understanding it and then the second thing is actually be able to implement it, you know, and that was my biggest frustration is I was carrying things through, even though I felt like I understood it, I knew the importance of it, I wasn't able to actually do it well. So if I just looked at rugby, for example, if I dropped a ball or if I missed a tackle, you know, the sort of thoughts that would be going through my mind back in those times. Or if, you know, Laura got upset at me for something because she's struggling with something and, I, and she should maybe, you know, offload that on me and I take it on, I feel like I'm failing. Not being able to just step back and be like, it's okay, you know, I'm actually not, I'm not a terrible person, I'm not a useless rugby player, I'm not a useless husband, I'm not a useless dad. You know, be able to actually, actually feel that was very different. So that's, yeah, that was a massive frustration for me through that time is not being actually able to implement the skills that I knew were important. Yeah, understanding the theory, but application is, is always a bit tougher than just understanding it. So what did you do? It was funny, um, really, like like a lot of things. One of the things I sort of hold dear is out of real challenging or difficult situations, often, often really good things come. And that was probably one of the initial ones for us was, so in 2014, end of 2014, Laura got a stem cell transplant in Singapore. And so she had been on medication in New Zealand for a couple of years now and she was not getting any better if I'm sure she was actually getting a lot worse so the medication wasn't working for her and the medication that she needed well that was meant to be the best sort of drugs for MS at the time weren't available in New Zealand so Pharmac weren't funding those and so we were going to have to pay I think it was a couple hundred grand a year to get access to these drugs and so it just happened that the club I was with in Japan just down the road from there was sort of the head specialist of MS in, in Japan so we went back there and they funded this drug for Laura and so she started on this drug but that had significant side effects and short she had to go off the drug reasonably quickly and so we were trying to find other things to do and we found something that a few people had done at early stages with MS that had a good success rate that was it was seemed to be too risky to a procedure to do in terms of risk you know we're talking less than one percent fatality rate but it's still high enough that it's a risk that they won't perform it on people with MS and it was a stem cell transplant. So it's where they take healthy stem cells from the bone marrow. They have like a small, they get a drug to, to pull the stem cells out of the bone marrow into the bloodstream and they harvest the blood. They split it all up and they take out the healthy stem cells, freeze them. And then um, I think they had they get 18 million stem cells or something they had to take. And then uh, she went under high dose chemotherapy for, a week and a half and to kill her immune system effectively was to try and take her immune system down to, to zero and then she went into isolation. They re-entered the stem cells and um, grew a new immune system effectively and hopefully this new immune system didn't have the same defect that was triggering her MS. To this date, that's been successful so she hasn't relapsed yet. I'll always say yet because we just don't know. They said to us if she goes two years without relapsing that she probably won't relapse again. And so it's coming up to six years. And so, you know, we're really happy with how it's gone. She's still got uh, lasting damage from the damage that was done previously, which is an ongoing challenge for all of us, but there hasn't been sort of new symptoms or new an onset of new stuff come on yet. And so we're really, really happy with that. But out of post-transplant, they recommended um, flotation therapy to us as a way to help with her recovery. 
and we didn't think much of it. We thought, oh, yeah, it sounds pretty cool. So we went and checked it out uh, in Singapore, and it was amazing. Um, Laura Pro didn't have the best experience for us starters. <laughs> There's sort of two buttons inside the pod, and one was a light to turn off the light. One was a sort of an alert button to reception. And so she was, she forgot which one it was, and she, she lay in there the whole time thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't know which one I should push. So she just lay there with the lights on the whole time, so she didn't actually do it. And then she got salt in her eyes, so it was a bit of a blowout for her. And then um, when we met in reception, I thought, I'd, have, I'd had an amazing experience. I had this just massively vivid dream of being back in my old house when I was young, and it was just, yeah, it was crazy. And I sort of woke up, and the music was going and stuff. You know, we chatted about it for quite a while afterwards, and um, we said, I will come back and do it again. So we did a couple more times, and by about Laura's third one, she started really noticing how, for her, because what MS is, is there's all this damage on her on her sort of spine and brain. And so there's all these little scars over sort of neural pathways. And so it requires way more energy to do basic things than it does for anyone else. So when we have a thought, our neural pathways go straight from one area to the, to the next in the most direct line possible. Whereas for Laura, because she has all these little scars along the, those routes, it has to take all these different angles to get there. And so everything requires a lot of energy. And so she, that's why she has massive fatigue. So a float environment where she has no stimulation, so no light, no sound, no smell, she's completely, her body's completely relaxed and completely sort of still. She just has this massive boost of energy. It's like a, a big sleep. And so she comes out feeling like she's had this massive amount of recovery just because her, her body hasn't been having to process all the stuff that it normally would. And so, yeah, so it was amazing for her. So we, she loved it. We carried on doing it for the last few months that we were up in Japan to finish the contract off moved back to New Zealand and we were just going to buy one and have one at the house and then did a bit of research on how it was growing internationally and, and then that sort of, that's where business sort of started for us from there. Yeah. Just to go back a, a stage, you obviously did that for her initially, but as far as you know, your well-being, your performance, you actually found that the floats helped you as well. Yeah, it was my sort of step away from everything initially. It was, it was my place to go and just... I just loved the locking of the door and just the closing down of everything and just it sort of made me step back a little bit from things. I've always been interested by um, just the power of the mind and that's right from my early floats. That's what I noticed most is it's not the most attractive thought or anything, but I felt like I was just nothing floating in, a, in this pod. Like I felt like I was just a mind. That's the sort of way, the only way I'd, I'd describe it. So that became my sort of, space to sort of train my mind so I'd go in there with you know I'd do exercises in terms of mental exercises around like confidence or around gratitude or read different things or watch different things I'd watch sort of my own sort of highlight package or um, doing it and then float and so those were the sort of thoughts that were sort of going on regularly through my mind and yeah it became like my little place to one escape but two I'd always come out just feeling a little bit better about things like I remember when I was really young thinking about things like placebo drugs you know, placebos being you know people can have a sugar pill that has physical impacts on the body and with just because of the way it's changed their mindset so I always thought man what is the power of the mind like how what can we actually do with things and because I had all these struggles mentally myself I was like well I want to be able to take control of this and so that became my sort of like mental training ground I suppose is the only way I'd describe it and um for rugby, for business, for family, I'd go with my goals, all sorts of different stuff, pre-float, and then they were the sort of things that were going on through my mind in the time. So, yeah, I loved it. 
And what's the whole idea behind a float? I mean, I know I've done one. I've done a couple actually with um, with you guys there. But maybe for someone who hasn't done one before or doesn't know, could you sort of give us a bit of a overview? The proper name for flotation therapy is uh, is rest therapy, so restricted environmental stimulation therapy. So it's it's about trying to remove as much stimulation as possible, so your body can your body and mind has sort of a step away from everything. So. Um, there's a number of things that go into creating it, but so obviously no light is key. So having completely a completely light-proof environment, no sound is key. So having completely soundproof. So you try and create zero gravity with the amount of density in the water. So you have we have 500 kgs of Epsom salt inside the water, so you float effortlessly up on top. So you can sleep on top of the water without sort of sinking, or you know you're completely safe and supported. But you can't feel that. I know it sounds a bit strange, but also, they're trying to create no temperature regulation. So, like right now, as I sit here, like my feet are a little bit colder than my core. My fingers, everything's a little bit different. So, my body's constantly working to try and control the temperature across my body. So, you're trying to create a consistent temperature from the air to the water to your skin. So, everything once everything comes the same temperature, your body's not having to work to to regulate its temperature. Yeah, so you're trying to, as I say, all, all stimulation is, is trying, you try and take away. And so that, that's what the premise of it is. Music helps, sort of wraps you into it at the start. And then if you fall asleep or you drift off a little bit, it will come on at the end and wake you up. It's kind of taking all the jobs off your body, isn't it? It's like your, your body's got this sort of system that's made to keep you alive and, and healthy and, and, and warm and whatever it is. And you're sort of trying to eliminate all those jobs so it can work on itself almost. That's a great way to put it. And so what all you're really left with, um, once you get to that, once you're able to really relax into the experience and you're able to sort of completely trust the water and stay nice and still so you, you can sort of reach that level, you're just left with your mind. And that's where I suppose a lot of people have really good benefits, but also a lot of people can struggle with is just how to process thoughts and what their mind is doing at that time. Mm-hmm. It gives you a bit of a snapshot into what is actually going on inside your mind when you've got nothing else to sort of take it to distract you from what's going on in there. So it can be pretty confronting for people. We, um, we've had, you know, a couple of people have quite emotional experience in there and uh, experiences in there and, you know, from real sort of ecstasy and, and joy to a bit of sadness. And I still remember one of the first would have been week two of opening and we had a guy come in, big beard, long hair, didn't really say too much before, sort of take, I took him in for the intro and explained what was, what was going on and he came in, he floated, he came out, I got him a tea and he was sort of sitting there afterwards and he didn't, wasn't saying too much, I sort of thought I'd leave him to it and I looked, sort of glanced over and I could see him crying, I could see him crying, sitting on the seat and I was like, Jesus, what's going on? I hope he's all right. I really didn't know what to do. And then I just sort of asked him if he was okay and he was sort of nodded his head and stuff and then sat there for a long, came over and and then he signed up for a membership and he's been a member ever since. So for him it was a, a bit of a release of something that was that was going on in there. He didn't want to, he didn't go into it too much, but yeah, there's a range of different things that happen for people in there, that's for sure. Yeah, but and it's quite interesting. I've never heard before you're actually sort of trying to preempt what your mind's going to do in there by watching certain things, whether it's, you know, highlights packages of your playing or, you know, is there anything else you could sort of use or preempt yourself before you go in there with? Yeah, so for me, um, I created this thing. It was all around the same time. It was a book. It was a fantastic book um, from a guy called Kerry Spackman. He's a Kiwi, actually, but it's called The Winner's Bible. Winner's Bible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I made my own sort of Winner's Bible and I had different, obviously, you create different areas right throughout. And so I had a section on a number of different things, but rugby being a section, my family and my friends and you know, the type of person I'd want to become, the goals, my strengths, my weaknesses, um, a bit of motivational stuff with the sort of carpe diem area and um, 
your intrinsic drivers. So I would sort of focus on different areas of that before going in. And so I'd look at rugby, maybe the one I was focusing on. And so I'd be, as I say, I'd use video or like images that I'd created in, the, in my winner's Bible. And um, that was the sort of stuff that was going on in there. Sometimes it was around my own personal development stuff. Sometimes it was around my family and friends. That was sort of my guide for pre that I'd use around floating. Yeah. Yeah. Did you immediately, obviously it had a, a wonderful effect on Laura and it was able to, um, you know, really help her. Were there noticeable differences? In, and I don't want to come back to sport as so much, but I'm just, I'm just using it because, again, because it, you know, is measurable. Did you notice that once you started doing this work on, on your mind, I guess, that um, your performance increased as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm never going to sit here and say that it was because of floating that it did it for me. Like I know it was just, that, that was my place to work on my mind. Things like meditation and floating were my sort of sources to train my mind, but 100% it had massive impact on my performance, 100%. Like even even still, like now, um, like I've just come off a couple of months in Japan and I'm probably playing I'm playing better than I've played in a long, long time. And I'm not as physically good anymore either. I'm not as fast, I'm not as strong, I'm not as um, as fit as I, as I would be. But it's purely down to my mindset, hands down, down to my mindset. The reality is athletes don't really change a lot physically week to week. It's not as if one week we're really weak, the next week you're really strong, and then that performance is because of that. The reality is we're all pretty even between teams and then within the, the individual athlete himself or herself is quite similar. They might make small sort of incremental um, improvements over time, but if their performances are up and down, it can only be mental. And so my, just my performances really became way more consistent. So I'd still have, um, I'd still make mistakes, I'd still, but I'd deal with mistakes a hundred times better. I'd still feel a little bit not that confident in games at times, but it was nowhere near as good. I'd still um, I'd still have times where I might be lingering a little bit on some things that hadn't gone so well previously, but I was able to move on really, really quickly. I had really good processes around things and I could bring myself to be where I needed to be. I know my trainings were way better because I was able to be really present in training. I'm definitely better with my family and my kids because I'm really able to be really present with them. It has helped me massively across all areas. And you used the word present there twice. Is you know what do you think it actually does? You know, like it, and when we talk about mindset, how do you think that actually transpires in a way to improve someone's physical performance or someone's ability to be a father or a husband or a support person or whatever it is? Do you have? And I know, you know, maybe not necessarily your area of expertise, but you've probably got some insight into it. Also, being present, obviously, or mindfulness, or being able to be being 100% where you want to be in that time. So if you bring it into, um, say, just a simple exercise, like if we're talking about, to say, a squat, if you are 100% present in that squat, you've got your setup as as good as it can possibly be, your breathing's as good as it possibly, your feet are in exactly the right position, you're moving at the right time with your breath, you're you're pushing off in in exactly the right areas through exactly the right parts, that squat is going to be a hundred times better than if your mind is thinking a little bit about something else or you haven't got quite, you're not quite as set up as you need to be. And so therefore you're going to be able to push more and therefore you're going to be able to get stronger. But that, that sort of principle you can overlay into everything. So with fatherhood, for example, if I am 100% present with my children, if I'm able to really listen to them and, and see them properly and give them good eye contact and, understand what's going on with them 
completely compared to my mind slightly being asked. And as I say, I'm not perfect with this at all. Like I know there's times where I'm nowhere near as present as I need to still. It's a constant challenge for everyone to, to be more that way. But when I'm working on it, I know I'm way better. Uh, when I'm flow directly or when I'm meditating regularly, I know I'm a lot better in this and across all of this. That's mindfulness, I suppose. That's what presence is about. But there are a number of other different mental skill sets available to people too. And being present is one, but there's a huge, huge range of other things that people can develop too. Anything else that particularly stands out for you at all? I've sort of learned over the last couple of years um, through um, a bit of work with a person that's working with us at our studio. So his name's Sam Thomas, and so his background's in psychology. And sort of these sort of five key areas to your sort of mental performance, I suppose, that you've got available to you. So it's called the OCEAN model. So it's a bit or the big five model. And so O-C-E-A-N. So O is openness to experience. And there's six key skills that fall within that. Things like emotionality or experientiality. So your ability to try new things or do new things. The second one is C, which is conscientiousness. And that's that's where mindfulness fits into conscientiousness. So it's your ability to make the most of the time that you have available to you. So if you are really mindful, if you've got really good discipline, if you're very really self-controlled, um, you're going to be more effective with the time that you have. E is extroversion. So that's your ability to engage socially with your social performance. So that's things like optimism or energy that fall within that. And so that's these six skills that you can train inside your extroversion or social performance. A is agreeableness. And so that's your ability to build strong relationships or your relationship performance. So that's with friends, with family, with colleagues, with partners. And that's things like trust or honesty, compassion. And once again, there's six skills in there. And then the last one is neuroticism. And that's um, your emotional performance, which is the big one for me that I tried to develop over the last wee while and things in your emotional performance are things like resilience and or being calm under pressure confidence so once again these different skills that I'll and so we actually we sort of tailor our meditations to each of those different skills at different times and um, for mindfulness I think is, is talked about a lot but for me that's only one sort of mental skill set really yeah, that's an amazing. What a what a cool you know acronym that is, and I'd love to have a chat with Sam at some stage. Actually, and that sounds um yeah, he's fascinating. I'd recommend that. That stuff all kind of. I mean, I don't know. I've never been in a professional sports environment, but for most people, that sort of stuff kind of sounds a bit woo woo. You know, like mm. it's like oh meditation and you know jump in this tank and think about your mind and your feelings or whatever it is. You know, like it, it's it's mm. it's got that sort of stigma of being a little bit sort of. Specifically, when you think about traditional Kiwi guys, you know, we sort of have that mm. stigma of not being really in touch with that. Have you sort of pioneered this in the sort of in your field almost in sport, or, or is this sort of something that goes on a lot behind the scenes? It definitely does go along, uh, goes behind the scenes reasonably well. I think it could be done a, a whole heap better. And I think it's getting better and better every year just because of this exact same reason. So you go back 15, 20 years thinking about having a mental skills coach or a psychologist coming into players about performances, just there's no way that would that would wash. But the reality is now it's really clear. You know, it's a core pillar of performances, your mental capability. So to think that you'd ignore that and not actually want to work on that, if you want to be the best you can possibly be, it's just crazy. It is single-handedly the biggest factor of performance where you go mentally. And so a really significant amount of work has done it in that in the professional sports space. So we were really lucky to be exposed to a lot. I still think it can be done a lot better, a lot more personalised to what's going on for the person at the time. As I say, I'd love to see it be a little bit more, I think a lot of it is more education and sort of just sort of top-down learning. 
what I mean there is is talking to people or talking to a person rather than actually building skills in people and actually exercising the mind. And so you need both. You need the top-down learning and you need the bottom-up learning, so the sort of habit-changing stuff. If you look back, say, 50, 60, 70 years, there were no sort of physical training spaces, really. You know, there was the old boxing gym, um, martial arts gym, but we are flooded now with high-quality professional training spaces that you can go to be able to perform as good as you possibly can do physically. My sort of passion is uh, what I'd love it to be is in 50 years' time that people look back and be like, oh, you know what, pre-then there was no mental training spaces that people go and train to be as as good as they could be mentally across a range of different skills. How crazy was that? They didn't actually use the work on their confidence back then. They didn't use the, like work on the compassion to build good relationships with people. It's just crazy. That's what I think O Studio is all about, is a space where people can train uh, mentally. So we and, and through all the sort of services that we offer in there, that's what that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. That's um and we'll go into O Studio a bit. I'd love to talk about it a bit more. What is quite interesting, I think, about sort of the, some of the stuff that you've talked about is that people will try and look for a solution if there's a problem. So like, for example, if someone finds themselves, you know, if they're not performing well in, in something or if someone's unwell or if someone, like if someone injures their Achilles, they work really hard to get back up to sort of where they were. And um, I think the same is with mentally, you know, like that's sort of where positive psychology came in. It's like psychology works really hard on, if our natural state is a zero, if someone falls down to a minus five, they'll work really hard to get back to a zero again. Mm. And I think what you've sort of highlighted is the fact that there's lots of work we can do individually that can sort of, rather than just performing well or being at a zero, sort of saying, hey, how do I get to a plus five or a plus 10 or a plus 15? And what are the sort of skills or, you know, things I can do to improve that? Is that sort of kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And so that, that's why we sort of talk about it in mental performance. So it's not about mental health. That's like, I think I'd put that into a slightly different category. And there's people that need genuine psychological and medication or support to be able to, and that's something completely different. It's to get people to an area that they are to be a sort of baseline. This for me is around extending skill sets or making you as good as you possibly can be in those areas. And so what we've actually got the ability to do now is sort of a baseline test, um, which takes about 20 minutes and gives you a really brief snapshot across those five areas that I spoke about before. And then you can choose the skills that you would want to work on. So you can see that you're naturally really, you might score really high on the the sort of time effectiveness or the conscientiousness part. You may score really high on the relationship part or but really low on the emotional part, emotional performance part. And you can choose specific skills within there and undergo sort of 10-week programs to develop those skills. And the sort of research that's been done on it now in Australia, a lady called Dr. Sue Martin, is, is amazing. And so the key is around that sort of 20 to 35. It seems to be the sort of the area that people can make the, the most drastic changes. And so the science is called intentional personality change is actually what it's called. And so instead of in sort of environmental personality change personality the way that it's the way that they would describe you know, your mental skill sets you've got um but intentional personality change is actually taking control over a certain skill that you want to develop and actually working towards developing it rather than just something because when like when you have kids or when you get married or you change a job you'll have changes to the way you feel about things or you the way you'll do you'll do things but this is actually sort of more taking control over it and doing it i've never heard of that before what did you call it intentional personality change yeah, yeah. So it's all, um, 
yeah, really well researched now. Uh, so sort of ninety five percent of psychologists would agree it's that the, the big five model, that ocean model, is the best way to describe it. And this lady has sort of shown that you can develop it by undergoing certain programs. And so that's where I'd love to take O Studio. And it's actually not rocket science the way to do it. It's pretty simple, really. Um, say if if compassion is the skill set you want to develop, this compassion is the skill set that's holding you back in your relationship or in your ability to get further in your work or whatever it is, you really can't understand the other person's opinions so you don't deal with them like you should. If you grabbed compassion and, and worked on that single skill set for a period of time with that top-down, bottom-up style training where you're habit-changing but in education and doing a number of different tasks to make you feel compassion, your compassion levels will grow so everything is proven to bump up. So you'll still have a range of compassion sort of scale of but everything is bumped up so the bottom and top are both higher which is awesome and the great thing about mental skill sets is if you develop a new mental skill set you've built a new neural pathway and so if that becomes your consistent neural pathway it's really hard to go back to the other way if you've established it so unlike physical fitness where you can sort of lose that skill set if you're not training it regularly with mental skill sets you actually change the way you think and that, that's lasting sort of meaningful change wow that's super interesting let's talk about o studio a little bit so i mean kind of from what what you've been saying you've kind of built this sort of like dream facility that you've always sort of wanted to and the idea is to you know that in a hundred years everyone will look back and go wow tim and laura were ahead of their time they, they built this you know 100 years ago what does it sort of do and how have you sort of, what was the you know, the concept and what does it do and how do you run it and all that kind of stuff? So first off, so with O Studio, there's, there's three of us that founded it, myself, Sam Thomas and Jess Smith. I'd worked with Sam previously on some stuff on flotation therapy, so he, he was doing some study on what flotation does for anxiety, which was awesome. And then uh, he moved up to Auckland and he was working on a business up there and I was wanting to open O Studio and wanting, knowing what I wanted to create. I knew Sam was someone I needed to get on board. He's just amazing, amazingly hardworking, is able to relate to people really well and extremely intelligent and understands this area really well. Andy, had, he was working with Sue Martin on some of this stuff. Jess, I mean, I started doing yoga probably 10 years ago and Jess was just my favourite instructor by mile. She just had a really awesome way with people. is just able to connect with people really well and, and would be probably the most experienced teacher in New Zealand. And so I thought that, that that's got to be the thing. I knew I knew floating yoga was going to be one of our biggest sort of drivers too. And so we wanted to run these programs through services like yoga and, and meditation and floating. So there are three core services. So those three, getting those three together was key for starters. And, and so they came on board early. So they were working on things with me for six, eight months before we opened. And then they helped build the team from there. So we've got We've got about 15 people that are sort of working in and around the space <clears throat> at different times. And the team is amazing. It really is amazing. So that was sort of step one for me. Step two was the space. And so there was a full fit out that went on over a year. So we, you know, there was nothing there for our starters. And we built the floor and built a second story and just fitted the place out with a number of different services. So we've got a big yoga studio that we run meditation out of too. So it's 32 classes a week of yoga a week and five meditation classes a week at this stage. Um, we're probably going to increase that to 10 and do night meditations as well because at the moment it's sort of 12 o'clock midday on weekdays. People come in and meditate. And then we have three flotation rooms um, which operate all day and, and evening. And then we have a massage therapy room. We have a dietitian come in out of there as well. And then we have sort of a nice bath and sauna set up in one of the rooms and then a re relaxation recovery space as well. So 
they're all quite different. All the skills are quite different, but we want the theme to be sort of the same throughout. And we've, I mean, we're five months into opening and we've, bar this last sort of week, <laughs> been really wrapped with how things have gone so far. It's been really, really well received. Yeah, it's quite unique, isn't it? I mean, is there anything else like this in New Zealand? Not yet. There's going to be a nice studio in uh, Auckland soon, but uh, no, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> no it's, uh, I'd love to do more of these places. And as I say, our initial sort of plan is to, to really nail down the core services of floating yoga and meditation make sure that we're doing those as, as good as we possibly can. So running really good flow programs, running really good yoga, a really amazing yoga service and meditation service. And we've still got a lot of work to do in that space. But I would love to sort of use this model and, and do it again elsewhere because you're, you know, you're right, there's nothing like this at this stage in, in New Zealand. Did you model this off anything else? Have you come across something like this overseas or have you literally just put all these elements together that you think are really important to someone's mental well-being and performance and created this? I haven't seen a space like this, no. I mean, I've been to, it's, it was one of the awesome parts of being a professional rugby player. Everywhere I'd go, I'd go to different meditation studios or yoga studios or flotation therapy centres and sort of pick up all, on all sorts of different stuff. And whether it be through America or South America or Europe, Japan, just trying to visit as much as I can and, and learn as much as I can and then pull it all together into this one space. So no, I haven't seen anything like this. I mean, I've seen yoga and float combination places. I've seen the odd float with a sauna combination. For me, that's it, more than just the services though. Like it's, it's actually the programs that we want to build and people do through the services or elsewhere and elsewhere and everywhere. I think that's a real point of difference, really, for us. Yeah, it sounds great. I've um, been lucky enough to come along. I certainly, it does feel like a very sort of kind of like a full circle well-being centre. You know, like mm. the, the whole sort of environment you feel once you're in there, it just feels relaxing, very sort of calm, very sort of feels like it's an escape from the real world almost. Yeah, well, it's great to hear because you never really know when you're when you're doing this is how people are going to feel in the space. But overwhelmingly, the response has been great. We want the space to, I mean, we have four key values. So our four values at O Studio are, so the first is we innovate. So we innovate means, you know, we do things a little bit differently. We're sort of pushing the boundaries of what's done. We, we take the research that's established and understood and then build really cool programs around that. And so we want our, our meditation sessions to be different. We want our yoga sessions to be different. We want everything we do to be slightly pushing the boundaries of what's normal. Our second key value is we connect. And so once we've innovated, once we've built these amazing programs, we, we connect with every single person that comes in the door. So the type of people that we have in there are just massively important. We want people to be able to actually see every single person as they come in and listen to them and be, be a part of the community. We don't want it to ever be a place that you just don't feel like you're a part of the community. So being able to really connect and build a community is massively important. The third value is we excite, which was a really key one for me because the reality with a lot of the stuff is it seems pretty boring, you know, and, and it seems like, oh, really, you know, med meditation, it's pretty average, you know, like, sure, sit down and do nothing for a bit. Like, so trying to instill as much fun and excitement through everything we can is massively important as well because I think if people are excited by something or if they really enjoy doing something, they want to come back and do it again. So trying to build excitement through the way we do things. And the last, our last is we deliver. So anything that we say we understand and we deliver on any promises that we make and then we innovate again and connect and excite and deliver and that's sort of the circle that, or our circle that we have in behind the scenes of um, what our values are and the way that we want to do things. 
Yeah, and who's got the business mind in it? Is it you? Is it is it a sort of a collective, all three of you? Or if, you know, it's one thing to be passionate about something and to like something, but it's it's a second thing to be able to set up a successful business around that model. There's a really good book called The E Myth. I don't know if you've you've read it. Yeah. And the E Myth is that you know, just because I'm a I'm a good baker doesn't mean I could run a good bakery, you know, and it's because mm. there's a lot of different skills that go into being a baker than it does to running a baking business, you know, and um, you sort of seem to have a perfect balance of both almost. First things first is I've got an awesome team, uh, 100% an awesome team around us and we have all contributed to this and we're actually all still contributing to it. We're constantly trying to evolve and, and grow new things and everyone plays a part in that. Sam, Jess and I and Laura from in behind the scenes, <laughs> all those conversations we have at home. Um, but yeah, 100% a collective approach. Um, I, I see, I have a business coach that I'll go and see regularly too, which is he's helped formalise all of these ideas. And I try and, it's probably one of my things, I, I speak to a whole heap of different people about different things and they ask a lot of questions and then come up with random ideas of, of how we want to do things and then often there'll be a cool idea of something that we want to do and then we'll all get together and try and figure out how we're going to do it. Yeah. The most recent of those being taking sort of our studio into the online space, which has been crazy over this last couple of weeks. But, yeah, it's, it's 100% a team effort. Nice. Before you, you said something quite interesting. It was quite earlier on, but I wrote it down here. and You said good things come from challenges. First of all, do you want to sort of explain what you mean by it a little bit? That was early days for me was a simple quote that I had that would, when things were pretty hard, I'd have a bit of a look at it and it would sort of help get me through things, but it was pressure makes diamonds. And the guy that actually said it to me, he was my first Canterbury rugby trainer and I was super stressed out and, and sort of a workout that I was doing with him and I had an exam, uh, sorry, an essay due and he just said to me, he's like, mate, pressure makes diamonds, you know? And I just remember thinking, yeah, actually, you know what, it does. I'm going to, and I, in it, you know, getting a really good mark on the assignment. And that became a bit of my sort of drive as when things got hard, I knew something really good was going to come of it. And that sort of evolved a little bit over time. And something that really resonates with me now is, is the obstacle is the way. And so like actually seeking out challenges or seeking out things that are difficult and a lot of people are trying to avoid is often where the opportunities are the most because one, there's less people going there because it's hard and two, if you can overcome those challenges, you've done something that no one's done or you're doing something completely different, you're in a different area that people aren't and so if you do that well, you've created something amazing and so that's sort of been a bit of my guide really to actually, you know, when I'm feeling that feeling like, man, this is a bit difficult, is actually I've got to go and do that. That means I've actually got to go and do do it well. Not many people run towards challenges. You know, I think I, I love it. I think it's a great concept and the obstacle way is that the Ryan Holiday book and it's quite a sort of stoic approach to things. I don't think it's widespread though. I think maybe a lot of people tend to avoid challenges or hard environments. And Steve Jobs had a really good quote. He said, trust the dots. And, you know, he got fired from Apple and all this kind of um, mm. you know, mess he got himself in. But he said, all the dots are events in your life. And at the time they happen, they might not necessarily seem like something that's positive or even helpful to you, but you sort of have to trust that when you look back, all those things will line you up to exactly where you're meant to be. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, and it's kind of a similar sort of way. And if you look back at, you know, the journey that you've had with sport and with, um, you know, your family and with Laura's health and, you know, you look back and all of those sort of events and challenges you went through maybe weren't necessarily anything you wanted at the time or you thought were particularly helpful or maybe even thought you they were 
counterproductive. But when you look back now, it's kind of like all those things kind of end up making you exactly who you are today, aren't they? Absolutely. And for me, I'm nowhere near perfect. I'm actually far from it. Like I know I still muck up regularly on, on a number of things. You know, when you, you say before about, you know, who's the business mind or who's the person behind things, I, I'm, there's always those little under, because that's me. You know, that all falls on me. And I know that there's people out there who could do a way better job than I'm currently doing. But I'll, what I know is I'll always do my absolute best and I'll ask for advice and I'll take feedback and I'm not stuck in my ways and I'll try and – it's all from a place of trying to be as good as possible. I think one thing you know, you said before around a lot of people won't walk towards challenges or won't take risks, I think – the reason for that is because of, you know, obviously the, the downside of that. So if you take a risk, the way I sort of try and explain this, if at one end of the scale you've got zero and at the other end of the scale you've got 10, 10 being taking big risks and zero being um, the downside of that risk. And it's a bit like a pendulum. So a lot of people will try and sort of stay at around that five. You know, if you take a risk to a six, the downside is that you might fall back to a four. And, and you can still live with that. Whereas if you're trying to swing out to a 10 and you miss that risk, the downside often can be substantial financially or whatever it is, whatever area of life it is. And I think for me, a part of living a full life is actually being prepared to actually experience the full swing of life and, and actually be comfortable with that and try and find ways to capture that downside as much as possible so it doesn't do as much damage as possible. But I think you've got to be prepared to actually to live that way as well and so there's certain things that I'll try and do now and then to make me sort of see if I could live like that you know if I was to lose everything would I be able to live on however much money a week and eat the same food every day and you know go without those those extra coffees or whatever it is to see sort of see if I would be comfortable enough to go in there and that sort of and just understand actually I would be fine you know I know I'd be okay that gives me a little bit more confidence to sort of push that risk pendulum a little bit more yeah, um, I don't know if that explains it well, but that's no, sort, of what I sort of said in my mind. Yeah, um, swing for the fence is kind of the, the analogy when you're kind of going to go big. But I like Tim Ferriss, I, you may know him, I'm sure you do. Um, he has this really good concept which he calls fear setting. Yes. We all set goals. The analogy you've just used is that what happens if I swing for a 10 and I end up back at a zero? And the concept he talks about is put yourself in that zero position mm. and then and then what would you do from there? What were the simple things that you would do to help get yourself back to a five? So you, you sort of plan the worst case scenario and then anything anything better than that, you've already got a plan for it being worse and if you do get to that then you sort of know exactly what you're going to do to help get out of it before you even swing yeah absolutely I think it's a, it's a great exercise he's awesome he's Tim Ferriss he's a big fan of mine I listen to a lot of his stuff yeah yeah he's a great thinker do you want to share any times you know when maybe you've you've tried something and it hasn't worked out is there anything that springs to mind when we talk about you know because often when people see someone doing well they see the highlights package you know they don't sort of mm. see the the work and the the failure or the trials or the missed opportunities that you've had uh, in the past is there anything that sort of stands out to you that maybe didn't go quite as well as you'd hoped the first thing that jumps to mind is probably the what is by far and away the most important part of my life and I and I feel like I failed at it, at it a lot is actually just my relationship really is, is the way I know that I can get things a little bit wrong, whether it be working too much or whether it be not being able to sort of really see things from my wife's perspective as much and, and, it, and I'm not great at dealing with it either when that happens. And so that's been the area for me that I feel like, you know, failed a lot at and I'm constantly, I'm constantly trying to get better at but you know, Laura has some significant stuff going on, and I'm and I'm constantly trying to be doing 
work in different areas and I'm very busy and there's lots of stuff going on. And even though in my mind I'm very good at understanding how important Laura is to me and how my kids and Laura are my absolute priority and I'll try my best to do that, I know I don't get that right all the time. I know I muck that up all the time. Um, and so that, that creates real challenges for us. So, I mean, that's the obvious one, but, I mean, there's a number of teams I haven't made over the, over the time and there's, there's stuff that I've failed and there's money I've lost on investments. There's lots of different things that I've mucked up, but the one that probably hurts the most or has hurt the most in the area that I know I need to keep really conscious of is being able to be the best dad and the best husband I possibly can because that the reality is that's what I do everything for, you know, but I don't, I know I don't, my life doesn't reflect that often when things get stressful and busy. Yeah, that would be the big one for us. That's a great answer. How do you balance your time? You know, I know you've got multifaceted sort of human being and you perform at a, at a high level in a, in a number of those areas. You know, how do you sort of balance your week or your time or your years? You know, is there a planning process you have at all? Or? I'm reasonably good at planning time and stuff. I know I could be a lot better at it. You know, there's times where I'm still working after midnight. I'll have a rough plan around certain things. Like I know I've got to get, like I have, I need to get this amount of fitness work done this week. I'm going to do enough body weights here, full body weights here, lower weights, body weights here. I'm going to do yoga every day. I'm going to meditate every day. And I'll have those sort of base things locked in. I know the, this, these are the sort of times that I want to work, but the reality is things come up often and I have to be ready to change that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, even today, you know, I woke up today expecting to be able to get this, uh, a few, few certain things done and already I know I'm not going to be able to do that because these other things that have come up that are probably a little bit more important that I need to deal to uh, will get right. Uh, opportunities that I have to sort of try and figure out. And so um, I just think because I've got lots of different things going on with family or with sport or with business, I have to be really flexible. And so that's actually hard because with my family, it has to be very consistent and it has to be very structured. And so that is the one thing I have to try and structure in is this is the time I'm dedicating to my family. And I know that I have to be better at dedicating time for training because that sort of stuff, training and family seems to be the things that get hit a little bit when I get busy. So I try my best to plan, but I know I can be a lot better. Yeah, I mean, you're any one of those is a you know a family of four or a professional sports player or someone with two businesses any one of those individually would be a worthy challenge you know trying to do a good job and you seem to balance all three so we're obviously doing something very well yeah, I don't know if Laura would say I do that well all the time but um <laughs> I know like because my priority obviously is my family 100% and so I'll try my best to be as good a dad and husband as I possibly can they're awesome like you know, we went for a family walk yesterday morning around the park and um, I said at the start of the year, there's one phone call that I'm going to have to take if it comes through and I was hoping that it wouldn't, but it did come through right at the end of the walk. So they, they know that sometimes I, there is stuff that I have to do and they understand that, but making sure I'm training and stuff because that's obviously I'm still playing and so I've got to make sure I get that done too. So I'm, you know, I'm in an okay shape you know, when it comes time to sort of be out on the field again. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. You're very humble, Tim. Do people tell you that a lot? <laughs> yeah. I don't know I think I'm, I think I'm um, to be honest I don't know if I'm, I think I'm probably just quite honest as I say I know that I muck up a lot and I think people can sort of understand that and appreciate that because they have the same sort of stuff the reality is I'm no different to anyone else I have heaps of things that I, I need to be doing better and and they're front of mind for me a lot and so I suppose because I'm open with them about it it might come across as being humble but um, for me it's actually just I would just sort of say it, how it is for me at the time. Yeah. 
Oh, it's inspiring nonetheless. Hey, um, as we finish off, I've got a, a couple of quick questions. What are you most proud of when you look back? And you've done so many different things and, you know, individually alone, there'd be, you know, something that would easily can make a list for anyone like this. But is there something that stands out for you when you look back about what you're most proud of? Uh, hands down, uh, it's a, probably a, a cliche answer, but it is hands down the thing I'm most proud of is um, the way that Laura and I have raised our girls. They are fantastic girls. They really, really are. We've got an awesome, amazing relationship. Yeah, I did a little funny, silly exercise with them the other day. I just had a number of these different questions and they had to write down the first thing that came to mind. And one of them was, um, what do you think of when you think of dad or what does dad say all the time? Or what, do you, what do you think of something like that? And the things they wrote down, um, but, but, you know, dad always says, I love you. And, and he, he often talks about hard work. And so that's always, that's been a sort of theme for us is it's not about talent. It's not about being perfect at things, being prepared to make mistakes. And, and just if you can just constantly work hard and get better, it'll, it'll work out. But I'm really proud of the way they are. Um, they have grown over this time because they've had massive challenges. Like I have with Laura's health issues, they've had just as above from that roller coaster too. So they've had to grow up and deal with a lot of different stuff. So I'm immensely proud of, of my two girls. In terms of sport, um, my proudest moment would hands down be captain in the Māori All Blacks and um, playing a game over there. I still remember sort of holding as a toki, like a, a greenstone pendant, doing the haka against. Uh, aside in, uh, in America and just feeling amazing and then business wise would be like Cloud9 was a massive job our studio was was um, another level again and I'm really proud of the way we've done things to date and the way we're sort of pivoting and changing with certain challenges I'm really 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 stoked with that so you know, three things I'd be really proud of yeah deservingly so as well is there Anything you would recommend to people as far as books, podcasts, shows, people? You know, you've got quite an interesting insight and sort of view on the world. And, you know, I always think that someone's personality is shaped by the things that they're in their environment. Is there anything particularly that you've sort of heard or listened to or liked or, you know, enjoyed that you think you'd like to recommend to, to maybe listeners? One I'd really like is the one you mentioned earlier is the Tim Ferriss show. Um, it's a podcast I listen to regularly. I think he's much like yourself actually, asks really, really good questions, has, has got a really interesting life himself um, and some very similar to what I'm sort of seeing with you is is constantly trying to learn and, and learn from other people's experiences um, and sort of adapt those into his own life and I just think the, people, the range of people that he interviews is great and I love you know, listening to those. So I've, and and in, in my downtime, I find mowing the lawns or if I'm buying groceries or something doing, or driving, I'll be listening to podcasts and he's often the one I'll, I'll listen to. A book would be probably would be the Winner's Bible for me. I've read a number of good books, but that was probably the one that's had the biggest impact on me and still does. And so we've done, done them for the girls and Laura's got hers and you know, probably needs a bit of an update, but um, that'd be two for me anyway. Yeah, that Winner's Bible was a great book. I did it probably a couple of years ago now and I've sort of, I just do mine yearly. How often do you update yours? Shivers has probably been over 18 months now since I've done anything. There's been some big stuff that's gone on in there. So yeah, I'll definitely need to update it again. Yeah. yeah he's a, have you ever met him, Kerry Speckman? No, I haven't. Have you? No, I haven't. He does a lot of work with like Formula One teams. He talks about it a lot yes. in the book, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a yeah he does. Very interesting guy. It's a very good book. I'd recommend it to anyone if they haven't um, haven't listened to it. What do you wish everyone knew? Like, again, you've got a really unique perspective. And if there was like a, if you had the ability to whisper into the ear of the planet, what would you say? What did, What would you wish that everyone knew? Well, that's a tough one. <laughs> 
I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me, um, and there's probably way more profound things out there that if I had a bit of time to really think about it, that would um, be better. But uh, the big one for me is, as I spoke about before, is being prepared to make mistakes. It's been, that's something that I've learned over the last probably 10 years is the only way to get better at something is being prepared to make mistakes. And so not having to be perfect is so important. And that was something that I struggled with. I, I think I grew up, because I grew up naturally good at a few things, I, I was okay in class, I was good in the, in the sports field and stuff, I think I sort of developed this terrified of failure thing where I almost became too scared to do stuff. I still remember my early years of professional rugby, I was too scared to practice tackling at training because I wasn't naturally that good at it and I was scared that the boys and the coaches would sort of be, oh my gosh, Tim can't tackle. And just how much that limited my whole life without pushing myself outside my comfort zone or being prepared to make mistakes, I wasn't able to do anything, you know. So, and that's, as I say, sport was one area, but being actually to push my comfort zone in my relationship and be able to have those conversations that I would hold in or to being prepared to make, take risks in business for the fear of failure is actually just being like, no, actually, I have to walk towards failure. I have to actually, I say to the girls before they go, make sure you make some mistakes today at school, like make sure you make, sure you make some mistakes. We have a bit of a laugh about it a lot, but that for me is like the key to growing is actually genuinely being prepared to fail because even in those failures, that's where you get those learnings. And so that's in my whole life for me is around trying to be the best I can in, in, in a number of different areas. And I think if people want to live full lives, they can have that sort of approach. They're at least going to grow more than they would if they didn't. Right, that's epic. That's a great way to end it. How can people find O Studio? Like you've you've spent the last sort of hour or so telling us about it. If, if people want to reach out or you know come and have a go at a float or you know a meditation with with Sam or something, is there a best way to find you? So I'm so everywhere: um, Instagram, Facebook. We've got a website, ostudio.co.nz. We have taken O Studio online recently, and so this is sort of an eight week trial um, of how things are going, and it's called O Connect. So that's been fantastic. So we're doing sort of live meditations at 12 o'clock weekdays. Um, we've got in the last 48 hours before we closed, we filmed 48 classes. <laughs> and so we've got, we're releasing those. So six classes a week for the next eight weeks. We have different challenges and um, workshops and community stuff going on. We had our first live concert on Friday night um, last week where we had a lady, Lee Martin, playing music and everyone sort of having a few drinks and commenting and stuff in their own, all their own little bowls. We had a creative sort of art workshop, the two real sisters doing cooking stuff. We've got heaps of cool stuff, heaps of cool content going on in there. So I definitely recommend people checking that out. So that, that's just going to our Facebook page and it's pinned to the top saying sign up to OpenNet here if they want to. And the way we've set that up is you can pay what you want. So whether it be a dollar a week up to $65 a week and whatever they pay, we match and then load the full amount onto their account. So if people are paying 20 bucks a week, it's effectively like $40 a week going onto their account at Studio that they'll be able to use when we, we reopen. Yeah. And so that's been fantastic. So we've got, I think, about 350 people um, in there now um, wow. all connecting and having a good time. It's really, really cool. And I think if we can do this well, we'll continue to do it in some, um, some format um, once we've reopened because I think it's definitely easier for people to be able to do meditations from home than having to come into the studio or to be able to, if they can't make a class, a yoga class to be able to do it from home. So mm. we'll have something that will 
carry on post-lockdown. Yeah, well, that's kind of interesting. And that sort of comes back to your whole pressure creates diamonds. This is probably not something you actually thought of doing beforehand, but because of this locked and you know um, mandated lockdown period, you're forced to do it really, really quickly, and it might be something that allows your business to grow sort of exponentially afterwards. Absolutely, it was re- really interesting conversations with Sam early on and Jess early on, and um, so my focus pretty much straight away was that we're going to shift all our focus to being online, whereas there was a little bit of a pushback there because all our planning to date was around trying to make sure our services in store are as good as possible. So how much attention do we want to shift to making things online? And pretty much what it's done is probably 90% of our focus now is, is in that online sort of space. And once we reopen, we want to make sure that our focus goes back there. But hopefully in this time, we can build uh, something that's a little bit easier to run because in the haste of things, it's a little bit clunky. The sign-up process is a little bit clunky and um, it's not perfect, but it's um, it's definitely still really, really good. So uh, it's, been, it's been interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, pressure makes diamonds, eh? That's the one. That's the one. Hey, Tim, I really appreciate your time. I know you've got a lot going on. I appreciate you being so forthcoming about the challenges you've faced, about the challenges your family's faced as well. And I think that's probably something that a lot of people, in sort of preparing for this, I did a bit of you know research and um, you know you and Laura have shared your story quite openly and I think that's um, quite unique. So thank you for everyone, uh, from everyone for doing that. Thanks for an insight into your life and to your business. So I wish you all the success and I, I'm sure if you continue on the way you have been that um, there's even brighter things in the future, mate. So thank you very much. No, I really, really appreciate it. And to be honest, right back at you, um, I've had a good look at what you've done and what you're doing, and I think it's fantastic. I learn just as much from from people like you than hopefully than some people will do from me. So no, I just want to say right back at you, mate, you're doing a bloody good job. So no, I'm really, really uh, happy to have been here. Wonderful. Hey, cheers, Tim. Be safe. Awesome. Thanks, Matty. And there we have it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. And of course, thank you so much for Tim for making the time as well. I really appreciate it. He's a um, man, a clever guy, eh? Humble, smart, intelligent, clearly gifted on the sports field as well. And, and a real privilege to chat to today. So thank you so much to Tim. And look, if you did take any form of value or you enjoyed the episode in any way, if you could do one of two things for me, that would be one would be to share the episode. Um, you can either tell someone in person or whichever platform you are listening to it on now, there'll be a share button. You can just hit that and send it to someone as well. Alternatively, um, if you could jump on iTunes and leave a positive review, that would really help as well. And again, like I said at the start, we are looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. So if you, a business or organization you know might be interested, then please reach out to me online at mattylovell.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram too. Other than that, thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your day. See ya. Bye. Bye.